A woman looks back on her life. She feels the terror of the present and the loss of her friends. She worries about what is to come and what she has left unfinished. She thinks about her son. She wonders, through the tears, where her life has gone. Southside, 2019 I have spent most of my life looking out of windows. In the second house, in Dublin, I climbed the stairs to look at the bay. Sometimes I would catch myself, after half an hour, still staring out into the open, into the world of possibilities that would never be mine. Then we moved here, and, although there is no view, I can sit and look out into the street. Little happens in our street, dead end as it is. But there are comings and goings, there are children playing in the good weather, and cars slowly turning when they figure out they're in the wrong road. I have spent most of my life waiting for something to happen. That is, not to say that my life has been without incident. No, there has been plenty of that, almost all of it unfortunate. I have ended up living in the space between events, reflecting not so much on what has happened, but on what has passed me by. I am a distant observer, really. It no longer cuts me. I no longer feel the depth of the sadness. I am used to it. In the background of my day, it is always there, the soft sighing of what has been lost, or what was never there in the first place. I am haunted, haunted by the eternal disappearance of the future. I am getting older, my body is getting weaker, and my mind forgetful and dull. Yes, I am trapped, that's how it feels, trapped in a present that is unable to move on. Still, I have my routine, and that provides more comfort than you might think, and it is also why, if that routine is disturbed, I become strangely anxious. The smallest deviation from habit is disconcerting. Roadworks, for instance, on the way into the village, requiring me to take a slightly different route. It's not that I don't know the way, I haven't lost my powers of navigation, but I am frightened frightened by the possibility that this time I might be found out, this time I might not be able to complete the journey. There is no reason for this fear, but it is there, hovering above me like a storm cloud. It is part of the ageing process, no doubt, but what a mean-spirited indignity to impose upon the already diminished. My world is shrinking, even though it was never expansive. The borders are being drawn in, and each task becomes inflated with importance, to the point where they all loom threateningly, as if waiting for my inevitable failure. I couldn't start the car the other day. I had been shopping in the village, collecting my usual paltry provisions, and it was raining, so there was no time for small talk, for the platitudes of the high street's passing places. I scurried back to the car park of the Catholic Church, which everyone who comes to the village finds the most convenient place to stop. Despite the best efforts of my raincoat, I was soaked, and it was with great relief that I sank into the driver's seat and put my key in the ignition. Nothing. I tried again, just the cough of breakdown. I waited. I tried to interpret the multiple electronic messages that flowed across the dashboard, but none of them made any sense. I tried again, same ghastly wheeze, more unintelligible messages, and the realisation that I was stuck. 
in a car in the driving rain. Why did it feel like such a catastrophe? I was in a familiar place. There were people I could go to for help. I was not far from home. Nothing had been stolen. I was safe. I was drying off. And yet, it seemed like this was the final straw. Proof that I was no longer capable of managing my own life, that I was evidently a discomfort to everyone I knew, and they would all be talking about me now with that mix of pity and condescension. She's on her way out, they'd think. She can't even deal with the basics now. And who were these people I was accusing, who didn't even know of my plight? Who did I really know anyway, I thought, as I sat there, a hopeless old woman, marooned in her own stupidity? I began to cry, and I hated myself for it. Then I noticed on the dashboard the car dealer's number displayed for any such eventuality. I was a member of the AA, of course. I had paid my yearly premiums forever. But I remembered that I had not put in the new sticker yet. The previous sticker had fallen off, and I had thrown it in the bin, so I couldn't call the AA. But the dealer was only three miles away, and this was Ireland, small, nosy, but with some vestiges of community. They might agree to help me out, especially if I mentioned my age. I asked at the bank where they knew me, and had known me for the decades of my existence in the village, if I could possibly ask them to call the number of the dealer. I explained my predicament and wiped away a tear. My tear, at this point, more strategic than genuine, I must confess. And, to my delight, from then on it was all so very... Not at all. No problem at all. I'll be right out to you. Just sit tight. It'll be grand. And I felt an upswell of compassion for my adopted homeland. It was the battery, obviously, the battery. I had left the back windscreen wiper on when I had gone to do my shopping, and I had possibly left it on overnight as well, and the short drive to the village was not enough to recharge it. That's the problem with this model. Electronics not connected to the ignition. Still working when you turn the car off. Got to make sure to flick those switches. And he connected his connectors and pumped the accelerator on his car, transferring enough charge to mine to let it start. Just drive around now, say, for 20 minutes and you'll be fine. Thank you so much. I don't know what I'd have done without you. Should's no bother. Thank you again. Mind how you go. My rescuer departed. I took his advice, and instead of heading straight home, I drove round by the bay, up to my church on the hill, down the long straight avenue, along the coast road with the Martello Towers, through the new estate, up past the convent school to the roundabout, and back to my house. Home, sweet home. And then my elation crashed to despair. I had let a minor inconvenience totally overwhelm me. Yes, I had prevailed, with luck and with sympathy, but how had I let my emotions be flooded like this, to the point where I felt there was no hope? All that had happened to me was that my car wouldn't start. I should have laughed it off. I used to be able to deploy my comportment and tone to ensure compliance with my wishes. I never had to throw myself upon the mercy of others. I was washed up. I was ebbing away from my own life. I cried again. I'm not alone in facing this most common of fates, withering. I see it in my friends. Are they really friends? I used to have friends, but many have died or moved away. Now I have tottering, nodding, bantering acquaintances, benevolent, well-meaning, warm-hearted, but without the bedrock empathy of real friendship, perhaps. 
or did I ever have what I think I've lost? Maybe not. At any rate, my peers are suffering too. I see how slow we all are, slow in body and slow in mind. We don't walk any more. The fittest among us scuttle like crabs, and the more afflicted stagger like drunks. We are old and frail, and the world wants to be done with us. We are tolerated, permitted to associate with one another, but not to intrude upon the real business of living. I sing in the choir here in the village. It's a harmless distraction for retired people who think they can carry a tune. At its worst, it's painful, but every now and again we produce a tolerable sound and a feeling of camaraderie breaks out briefly. It's only once a week, but it's something to look forward to, and as a result I have added to my collection of folk with whom I can natter for five minutes outside the country bake or supervalue. I've lost my connections with other networks, older networks, parents of my son's old school friends, for example, or people who knew my husband, or even the distant constellation of his distant relatives, who still orbit somewhere in the darkness. You catch a glimpse occasionally of such people. There they are, out of the corner of your eye. But I haven't the confidence to approach, and they haven't the memory to recognise. On we blunder, in denial, having shed so many skins along the way. And then there is the church, my church, Holy City, up there on the hill. I need my car to drive to church, if nothing else. I'd never make it on foot nowadays. But I attend with dedicated regularity. Not for the religion, not for the sense that there might be something beyond us, above us, guiding and protecting. To be honest, I'm not sure if I ever had what you might call faith. To me, it's the gathering that matters. Saying hello and goodbye, the shaking of hands and the singing, the smell of the candles and the flowers, the way the light is mottled and warmed by the stained glass. My son has told me more than once that this is a shallow reason for going to church. But he is wrong. These are human reasons. We go for the company and the gentle support it offers. The Reverend Aubrey Lansford is long gone to his reward. He was a good man, that's what everyone says when his name rarely is mentioned. That's not, of course, what they said when he was alive. When he was alive, he was a figure of fun and also of some embarrassment to the select vestry. It was they who appointed him, though how and why is lost in the mist of time. He really was a good man, though, kind and concerned. He was ineffectual, and he wrote and delivered appallingly bad sermons, but he was there to be called upon in his parishioner's hour of need. He came when my son was in difficulty, and though he did not have any answers, certainly no religious answers, he was not afraid of the ugly and unpleasant side of human suffering. So now, whenever his name is mentioned, I stress that, yes, indeed, he was a good man, and I say it with conviction, because it is true. The new rector is a very different proposition. He is young, and he has a family. He is from the more evangelical wing of the church, something to which I am finding it quite hard to adapt. Tambourine Tom is his nickname among the wicked. He likes the sound of young people yelling and playing electric guitars, he is very successful and has expanded the congregation significantly. He has attracted many Catholics, no longer able to countenance scandal after scandal and the mealy-mouthed apologies and continuing cover-ups that their church is currently marred in. No scandals in the Church of Ireland. 
perhaps. When the service is in full Reverend Tom Murray swing, there's a fair old racket to be heard as people give themselves over to what they assume is the Holy Spirit. To me, though, the look on their faces at such heights of religious ecstasy is one of overbearing self-congratulation. They gyrate with retarded abandon and all look like imbeciles. I'm not alone, but we keep our counsel and wait for the sugar rush to settle down. After the service is over on Sunday, I go home and face the most difficult part of the week. I can conjure almost necessary things to do from Monday to Saturday to keep my brain from freezing over and my loneliness from biting too deep. But somehow, on Sunday afternoon, as the grey clouds scud and wobble their way across the sky and persistent Irish drizzle leaks down upon us all, I feel cast adrift from the rest of humanity and from the few sunny highlights of my past. I think of my son on Sunday afternoons. He is in London. He has a girlfriend. I don't suppose they consider marriage as an option. Few young people do these days, which is a pity. They are thinking about having children. He has a job, and he has not been in hospital for several years. There should be considerable contentment to be derived from these facts. And there is. There is. I need worry less than I used to. The fear of the phone call from some godforsaken corner of the world to tell me to sell my house to pay for his repatriation, for example. The fear that he had done something mind-bogglingly stupid or committed some crime or, heaven forbid, injured someone somewhere. These immediate worries have faded in intensity. They haven't gone away completely. How could they, given what we have been through? And my sort of daughter-in-law is quite an attractive young woman, and she is intelligent. When I first met her, I was almost happy, almost relieved that the burden of care would now be shared with someone with a robust constitution. And then, as always, when I am disabused of the forming belief and return to the status quo ante, where the facts are rearranged but fundamentally nothing changes, then I'm afraid I crash. She has a mental illness as well. Of course, how could she not? Who else but someone similarly afflicted would take on the problem of my son? But where will it lead? These diseases wax and wane. They do not go away. I have learned that from my experience with him and from talking to the doctors. They all say the same thing. It is a lifelong condition. Yes, it can be mitigated by adhering to the treatment regime, but eventually the symptoms will erupt again and another relapse and another admission will happen at some point. And if there are two of them following this course, then while they may think that they are providing support and stability to each other in the long run, they may in fact be undermining each other's chance of remaining well. And then, if you think about bringing children into it... Never mind the usual reservations about the kind of world we inhabit, about the costs, about the strain on anyone's mental health through bringing up kids, but to procreate knowing that you will inflict upon a child the burden of not one, but two parents who are fissured with insanity. Well, it almost amounts to a criminal act, an act of supreme egotistical negligence. And then I hear myself. I hear the thoughts that are billowing around my head, flapping with useless anxiety. First of all, they will not pay you any mind, old woman. Secondly, they surely have the right to try. They may fail, but don't we all fail in some ways with our parenting? Thirdly, they want to make a grandmother out of you. There, in your old age, they want to comfort you with the joy that little ones might bring. 
How dare you, old woman? How dare you slap nature in the face and tell them that what they are doing is wrong? Who is selfish now? And yet, and yet, I can't resolve any of it. I have spent so much time poring over the past. I think about my son, my Sunday afternoon penance. How far are we now from a good relationship, the kind of relationship I see that so many people around me enjoy without rancour, without pain, without work? Sons who at least live in the same country, sons who call out of love and respect, sons who come bearing gifts, sons who have earned enough to add a little luxury to their mother's final years. And what am I to do with my emotions? Is it wrong to yearn? just for the ordinary, just to be a little bit more like the people around me. I want to be able to go to church and tell my friends about my weekend with my only child, and for it to sound like the simplest thing in the world, and for me to feel that I am complete. Yet all the tribulations, the lacerations of disappointment, the anguish, the branded grief of my husband's death, the gouging shame of my son's mental collapse, that all of these are behind me, and the future, what is left of it, is reward now, ease and calm and quiet. I hate myself for the resentment I feel towards the whole bloody world. I am caught vice-like in this trap. I haven't the strength to break out. I am a bitter old woman who resents even the bitterness. I am overly aware that I wear my sour heart on my sleeve. Where am I to turn? There's a girl I once used to know. There she is, in a picture on the mantelpiece. This was taken before she met the man she would marry and before she would move to Ireland. She is happy. Look at her radiant smile. She is pretty, and there is a mischievous spark in her eyes. She is looking out of the window, too, but the window she is looking through opens onto the whole world and onto the whole span of what might be. Who is she? Who is she? Who is she? Thank you.